Hello, good morning. Uh, we're finishing out Micah today, so I'll be reading chapters 6 and 7. Hear the word the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, the, hear you mountains, the, Lord, and the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and sent, you, sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know that the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is a sound wisdom to hear, to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is cursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and the bag with deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint your head, yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a des desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Woe is me, for I have become as the summer fruit has been gathered. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. Then the great man utters evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, your, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth and from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is Yahweh your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls 
and the day of the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and to the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, to the, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds, shepherds your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and be af- ears, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come out trembling of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to Yahweh, our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Good morning. Um, So the passage we just read, it it takes us to the end of Micah, which makes us halfway through the minor prophets, only only six books left, and then then we're done. Um, In this passage, we get God kind of calling Israel to count for their actions. They respond to that. It's like his, his indictment. They respond, and Micah responds. And then we'll see kind of the consequences of their disobedience in their society, promise of future redemption and restoration. That's kind of how the book wraps up. And so let's let's pray together and then we'll get into this this morning. Father, once again, we we thank you for your word that in it we we find not only what what has happened in, in the history of your relationship with your people, but we get to see more and more evidence of your grace to them that despite the fact that they and we repeatedly fall short on our end of the relationship, that you continue to be faithful, you continue to be steadfast, you continue to show grace and mercy to your people, uh, even though we have done nothing and, and do nothing to deserve it. We pray this morning as we look at the last couple chapters of Micah that you would you would send your spirit to, to help us to just understand it together and, and benefit from it together, that you would, you would grow us as your people uh, to be more like who you desire us to be and less like who we are uh, in our natural selves, and that you would stir our affections for who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you came to put an end to our sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we get this, this indictment of, of God, of his people, in the first five verses. And so the first thing he does, he asks them, like, what, what, is he, what has he done to them? How has he wearied them? And then he recounts what he's done for them. So he, he talks about how he, he brought them out of Egypt. He, he redeemed them from their slavery. He sent them leaders. And then he says, O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may 
know the righteous acts of the Lord. So all the way back in Numbers, uh, the king of Moab, Balak, hired this guy named Balaam to go out and curse the people of Israel. He wanted, he's, you know, he saw this kind of army moving in. He wanted to send Balaam out there to curse them, but Balaam was unable to curse the people of God. Instead, he just, he just blesses them. Um, Shittim is the place where at the end of Numbers, the people break the covenant, right? So they've been kind of journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. This is where they break the covenant. But Gilgal is where the covenant is renewed. So from Shittim to Gilgal is kind of like the last journey into the promised land. And so what the Lord is doing here is he's recounting for the people kind of what he's done in the history of his redemption of the people. And his point is that he has consistently, he has continually, he has faithfully upheld his end of the covenant relationship, and the people have done the opposite of that, right? Even even before they made it into the land, they've broken the covenant. They renew the covenant at Gilgal, and yet now in Micah, he's calling them to account for the fact that they have again broken the covenant. We see their response to his indictment in verses 6 and 7. They say, what should we bring before him? Like, how, how can we make this right? How can we make this okay? So they say, what about, what about burnt offerings? What about year-old calves? What about thousands of rams or, or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Would, would that please him? And then they say, what about offering our firstborn child? The, the fruit of our body for the sin of our soul. This shows just how far gone Israel are, right? Like how, how could they get to a place where they think the right answer, the right response, the right thing to do to worship God is to sacrifice their children, right? They clearly don't understand who God is. And so Micah in verse eight tells them what God wants. And this is probably the the most well-known verse in all the minor prophets, He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So this is what he wants from them. He doesn't want all those other things. He certainly doesn't want them to sacrifice their children. He wants them to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly. So first he wants them to do justice. What this means is that he wants them to treat people how they deserve to be treated as as human beings who are made in the image of God. You know, when we, when we think about justice, we often just think about the negative side of judgment or justice, like the, the punishment of wrongdoing. And that's, that's part of it, right? People get what they deserve when they do bad things to other people who are created in God's image. But people also have justice done to them when we honor them because of who they are as image bearers of God, when we treat them with, with dignity and respect because they're human beings. Justice is both positive and negative. Sometimes it's lifting people up, and sometimes it's holding them accountable. He also wants his people to to love kindness. So one of the greatest joys, one of the the things we should cherish should be kindness, right? We should be people who, who love kindness, who value it as much as God does. And he tells us to walk humbly with our God. Humility is just having a right assessment of, of who we really are in light of who God is and in light of who we are. So it's taking an honest assessment of who he is and who we are and then living in light of that. 
When we talk about humility, there's often this quote that kind of gets, gets thrown out. I've, I've used it. Other people that have, that have talked to BC have used it. It's that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I've attributed it to Keller before because I've heard Keller say it. Lots of people attribute it to C.S. Lewis. This week I found out that Lewis didn't actually say this. In fact, the origin of this quote is in this little-known book called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. So all you people who have been quoting C.S. Lewis are actually quoting Rick Warren. But it's a good quote. This is what Lewis actually said about humility. I think we've got a slide. First one, back up. All right. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be like what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Yeah. I was all good until I got to the last sentence. (laughs) God wants us to to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. To treat people how they should be treated. To treat them with with kindness, with with a lifting up of them and and a not lifting up of us. A lack of focus on us and more of a focus on others. This is what he wants from us. This is what he wants from his people. It's what he's always wanted from his people. And and clearly that stands in contrast to who they are. They're people that want to sacrifice their own children so that they can get ahead. It's it's evident that, that their hearts just aren't in it when they come to worship him. And when we think about God wanting us to, to do justice and to love kindness and, and to walk humbly, I think this is one of our places, one of those places where, where we begin to think about, you know, like we don't, we don't want to be hypocritical like them, right? We, we don't want to just do the, the outward thing and not have the inward heart behind it, right? My, my, my heart isn't in it, and so I'm just, I'm just not going to do it because, because I don't want to be hypocritical. I'll wait until my heart is in the right place, and, and then I'll walk humbly. Then, then I'll love kindness. Then I'll, then I'll do justice. But the problem with that is that, that our hearts are, are rarely, if ever, in the right place. Right? If we define right place as I have the perfect motivations, we never have the perfect motivations. Right? Even when we do something humble, there's part of us that's thinking, look at how humble I was. But there's a big difference between us saying, I'm, I'm not as humble as I should be. I don't love kindness as much as I should. I, I, I don't do justice as much as I should. But, but I want to be who God wants me to be and trying to walk that out in obedience. There's a big difference between that and us saying, maybe we should sacrifice our children. 
right? That, that is a right heart. A right heart is recognizing that, that we're not who we want to be, but we want to be who God wants us to be. Right? Us wanting to grow, us wanting to step out in faith, us wanting to walk in obedience, even if our heart doesn't have perfect motivations. Because it's never going to have perfect motivations. And so let's just be people who, who walk out the obedience that God calls us to, trusting that he's going to fix our heart. Because we can't fix it for ourselves. Right? That's, that's a right place of starting to walk it out. But that's not who the people are in Micah's day. So Micah says judgment is coming. Well, the Lord explains to them that he, he can't forget what's happened. He can't forget what they've done. He can't acquit them with, with deceitful weights or, or wicked scales. And so he has to hold them accountable. They're, they're full of violence. They speak lies and deceit. Verse 13, because of their sin, he's going to strike them with a grievous blow. He's going to make them desolate. And then he describes them. He says, they'll, they'll eat, but they won't be satisfied. They'll, they'll hunger. They'll sow, but they won't reap. They'll tread olives, but they won't get any oil. They'll, they'll crush grapes, but they won't get any wine. And what these are is these are a direct reversal of the promises they had going into the promised land. When they were entering the promised land, he said, it's going to be fantastic. You're going to get there, and you're going to eat from vines that you didn't plant. You're going to drink oil from, from olives that, that you didn't plant the trees. Like everything is going to be great. You're going to inherit the work of other people. But now they're going to do the work and not get the blessing. So these things are reversing. So, so what, why is this happening? Look at verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. So these Omri and Ahab, they're, they're some of the most wicked kings from the northern kingdom. They, they led their people astray after false gods. And obviously they are held accountable for their actions. But here the people are held accountable for, for their walking after these kings. They're, they're following in their ways. They're listening to their counsel. And so, so they're held accountable. But notice that after all this, after they're held accountable for these things they've done, look at what he says at the end. He says that they will bear, the city will bear the scorn of my people. Right? So even after all of their covenant breaking, even after their hearts get to a place where they think maybe God would be pleased by child sacrifice, even though this is who they are, at the end of all this, God is going to pour out judgment on them, but he still calls them his people. He's still upholding his end of the covenant, even though they're not. In the first seven verses of chapter 7, Micah describes what it's like to live in the midst of these people. He says that he has become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Essentially what he's saying is he's saying there's nothing good left, right? After the harvest, there would still be some stuff kind of left on the trees, left on the plants that people could go along and they could pick and eat. But Micah says that living in the midst of these people is, is you know, everything's barren. There, there's nothing good. There's nowhere for him to turn. He says, verse 2, The godly have perished from the earth. No one is upright. They all lie in wait in blood. They only do evil, but they do it well. Leaders are corrupt. Even the great men are, are greatly evil. The best of them are like a briar. The most upright is like a thorn hedge. He says that the days of the watchman, the days of the punishment have come. He's recognizing now is the time for God to pour out judgment on these people. You can't trust your neighbor. You can't trust your friend. You even have to guard your words with your spouse. Families turn against each other. There's war within everybody's house. 
But verse 7, Micah says that he will continue to put his hope in the Lord. Right? Even though this is where he's at, even though this is who he lives with, even though these are the relationships that he has, he's putting his trust in God. Things are bleak, but he will look to the Lord. He will wait for the God of his salvation. He knows that God will hear him. And then verses 8 through 13, the, the city kind of cries out itself. This is a, a personified Jerusalem crying out to God. But in it, we see some acknowledgement of, of sin and some repentance on behalf of the people. So it says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So here, there, there's some acknowledgement of their sin. There's some, some repentance happening, and, and they recognize that their present circumstances are because of their own actions. They've rebelled against God, and now they're bearing the consequence of those actions. There's also trust in God's justice, right? They know that, that they will be vindicated eventually because they're still his people. They're, they're trusting in his grace. They're trusting in his mercy. Verse 10, then... My enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So there's a recognition that, that the enemies of Israel and Judah, even though they've, they've been used by God to pour out judgment on the people, they are going to be held accountable for their actions. Verse 11, A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So this is looking to the future when, when the city is going to be rebuilt and the people are going to be gathered in. The, the new Jerusalem is going to, be, going to be constructed and its boundaries are going to be extended. The people of God will enter it from, from all over creation. But outside the city, there's going to be desolation because of the sin of the people that reject God. So God is going to restore his people, Micah says. He's going to shepherd them once again. They are his inheritance. They're going to be safe and protected. The Lord is going to be with them just like he was with them when he brought them out of Egypt. So he's looking back to that, that gigantic act of redemption in the Old Testament and saying things are going to be like that all over again. And the nations are going to be ashamed. And they're going to fear the Lord because of their sin and rebellion. So Micah closes the book with a recognition that there's no one like God. He says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Right? Micah understands who the people are. He's just been describing them. He understands their sin. He's been describing that. He knows that God has upheld his end of the covenant relationship and the people absolutely have not. And it causes him to recognize that there, there are not gods like this, right? Who show grace and mercy to their people after repeated rejection and rebellion. He says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in steadfast love. Right? That's who our God is. He delights in showing us steadfast love. It doesn't say he, he tolerates it. Right? It doesn't say he's ambivalent about it. It doesn't say that he's got to psych himself up to really care about us. He delights in showing steadfast love to us. 
Micah says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah is looking forward to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Right? He came. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died in our place. And he was victorious over sin. He put an end to sin and death and Satan. Micah says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah knows that our God is a, is a covenant-keeping God. And we know that all of his promises find their yes in Christ. In this book, we see that God holds his people accountable. He punishes them for breaking the covenant. But he doesn't let the covenant get broken. He he upholds it. He, He preserves it. He renews it with his people. He upholds his end of the covenant. Even after the judgment is falling, he he comes back with promises of redemption and restoration. I've seen more of who God is in this book, seen what he's done for his people, what he he does for them despite who they are should cause us to respond just like Micah does at the end by saying, who's a God like this? Who is a savior like Jesus? The answer is no one. There is no other God like this. There is no other Savior like this. There's no one for us to turn to other than him. And so I want to read again these last couple verses and then pray and then we'll continue to celebrate the reality that this is who our God is in this service. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is no one like you. That you are faithful when we are faithless. That you delight in loving us when we don't. That you take our sin and cast it into the depths of the sea. You made a way of redemption for unredeemable people. We pray that you would not let us forget who you are and who we are because of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you would send your spirit to to help us to respond rightly. To the God you are. And to the people we get to be because of you.
Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.